right. Good morning. <laughs> if you would, and you're not already there, turn to Jude. We're in chapter one because there's only one chapter. Um, we're going to cover a fairly large section of the book this morning, um, which, to be fair, is really short. Uh, the book itself is short. It's one chapter. It's just a few verses, one page. But there's a nice big chunk that we're going to do today. And um, so we're going to be in verses 11 through 19, okay? 11 through 19. Now, Jude is going to spend a significant amount of ink right here, describing in very graphic terms fake Christians that had infiltrated the church, okay? And he does this in several ways here. Um, he includes three examples from the Old Testament, which you may remember he did that in uh, one of the previous messages. He goes through the examples of the Old Testament. Uh, he's going to give six metaphors. He's going to give a very, very strong condemnation, which is it's really interesting because it's, it's apocryphal, and we'll get there really quickly. Um, and then there's some more just scathing adjectives on top of all that. Just He's very, very, he comes off angry almost. And by the end of his rant, you can kind of sense him. He, he's panting in frustration. Um, now, there's a reason for this. This is because he is a zealous believer in Christ. And he understands the, the importance of pure doctrine and of pure behavior that Christians are called to. Okay, and we learn a whole lot from his, his level of concern because we have to remember, guys, the stakes are really high, okay? So uh, that's where we're going to start off here. Um, there's, there's surely as many false Christians, if not more, today as there were at the time. Um, so what we're going to do is, is we're going to look at the bad fruit that Jude ascribes to, to false Christians in these verses, and then we're going to consider the corresponding good fruit that should emanate from true believers, okay? So bad fruit from fake Christians, good fruit, hopefully, from true Christians, all right? Now, Jesus said, you're going to know a tree by its what? By its fruit, right? So, so I'm hoping, I want us to, to have two big takeaways from this, okay? Number one, uh, we need to examine our own hearts and see whether we are producing fruit that matches our profession. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is to know what to be on the lookout for so that we can be careful about who we allow to influence, uh, influence us, to influence our, our church family, even our own families at home. And so, so that's what we're here for. We're going to pray, and then we'll jump into to Jude. Uh, Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name for each person here, let us be ready to hear this. I want us to bear fruit, Lord. I know it's so much more than, than, than any of us want. You want us to bear fruit. You desire that we honor and glorify you, that we obey you, that we show the world how great you are, how kind and merciful you are. Because you've changed us from rank sinners to saints who still sin but who should be striving not to. And Father, I pray that every person here takes something home from what they hear, that that just convicts them, Father, that, that at the back of their mind, they're chewing on it all week long. And I pray that for your sake and for our sake, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Jude begins verse 11 with, woe to them, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and punished, uh, excuse me, perished in Korah's rebellion. Now first, what does he mean by woe to them? It, it, it is a very strong statement 
of impending doom in the absence of repentance. Okay? This is a statement of judgment, of condemnation. And listen, I want you to understand this because a lot of people take Matthew 7.1 out of context. Matthew 7.1 is probably the best known scripture now. It used to be John 3.16. And now it's, don't judge lest you be judged. Well, here's the thing. Jesus was talking about the condemnation that some people would have for others. They, they would look at another person and they would say, well, because you don't do things the way we do them, you know, you're, you're not really a good Jew. And when Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged, he's not saying don't practice discernment. He's not saying use your brain to determine what God says is right and wrong based on what you're seeing. Okay, so here's what's happening. Jude is not doing something sinful in writing this. He's not judging anyone based or any of these people he's talking about. It's not based on his own authority. Right? It's based on what God, listen, it's based on what God has already stated about their behavior. You understand? You understand? It's one thing to say to a person whose heart you don't know, you're going to hell. And it's another thing to say, God has judged the behavior that you're currently exhibiting. And this is what Jude is doing. Now, how about these three? Old Testament examples he uses. The first is Cain. Cain was guilty of a whole lot, but particularly envy, murder, and then apathy, among other things. You know, all remember the story? It's Genesis 4. It's the first recorded murder of a human being in all of history, but particularly in the Bible. And, and recently, I heard someone, he preached about what an incredible shock this would have been at that time. You know, we, we are accustomed sadly, to hearing about people killing one another. Okay, it's in the news all the time. So we're used to the idea of murder, but this had never happened before. One person put it to an end to another person's life. And on top of that, it was fratricide. It was brother against brother. Okay, anyway, Cain was upset with Abel because God had accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not his. And we know from the book of Hebrews, the reason for that is that Cain's actions were evil. Okay? Since he coveted that relationship between Abel and God, he murdered his own brother, and then he acted like it wasn't a big deal. The Bible says while they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Now, of course, wickedness and hatred and dishonesty, all it's evident here too, but we see that it was the envy of his brother that led to hatred, which culminated in murder. And then when asked about it, Cain acted as though he couldn't care less. In fact, he, he, he asks a question, am I my brother's keeper? That should prick all of our hearts because we should care about our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a sense in which we are one another's keeper. The opposite fruit that a Christian ought to have would be contentment, love, and compassion. Contentment, love, and compassion. Being content with your situation rather than envious of someone else. Um, it, it's, it's not desiring the worst for others, even your enemies, right? But rather desiring what's best for them. And you may be thinking, wait a minute. Love is the opposite of hate, not murder. But hey, what does Jesus equate hatred to? 
Thank you. And then compassion. Compassion is a word that it kind of encapsulates all the, the pathos words, you know, sympathy and empathy. Uh, all those words that are antonyms for apathy. Okay? We should be, uh, we should care for one another very deeply because God cares for each one of us deeply. Okay? The next example is Balaam. You know, this is the guy that had the argument with the donkey. You know the story? I love this story. It's, it's wild. If you don't know the story, check it out, Numbers 22. Um, it's an interesting example because in this story, it's really, it's kind of hard to see what Balaam's sin actually is, what, his, what Balaam's error was, you know, because he ended up doing what God told him to do in the end. But the Bible specifies that it was greed and not just any kind of greed, okay? It was greed that both stemmed from and blossomed into other sin. We know that from 2 Peter 2, which, by the way, that has a very similar theme uh, to this section of Jude. It has a lot of commonalities. That doesn't mean that, that one copied the other. They just had the same divinely inspired author, right? They had the Holy Spirit telling them what to do. Anyway, here's what Peter said in uh, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they, that's false teachers, have gone astray. He says, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So there's our answer. So then what would be the good fruit that's the mirror image of the bad fruit of greed? Wouldn't it be generosity? Of all people in the world, shouldn't Christians experience generosity toward others? I mean, we've been given the free and undeserved gift of salvation. So, so wouldn't it be great if we were just as generous with others as God is with us? Consider which word better describes your actions, your heart, looking up there. Consider, though, which word, greed or generosity, is more aligned with the so-called prosperity gospel. Because remember who Paul, excuse me, who Jude is talking about. He's talking about false teachers and false Christians. Jude's third example is of pride and a rebellious heart. How many of you guys know the story of uh, Korah and Datham and Abiram? Some of y'all probably do. Some of y'all are like, I don't know those names. <laughs> it's not Daniel in the lion's den. It's not Rakshak and Benny. I don't know. Um, the story is interesting. The, the latter two, Korah and, and, excuse me, Datham and Abiram, were actually burned up. They were consumed by holy fire after trying to usurp the priesthood from Aaron. But uh, the former, Korah, he was kind of the ringleader. He actually got swallowed up by the earth after Moses essentially prayed that the Lord would prove that Moses was the guy that God had placed in authority over Israel. And he said, if I'm the one, he's essentially, he says, then let the earth open up and, and draw them down to Sheol alive. And that's exactly what happened. It's not the kind of thing that normally happens, <laughs> but it did then. He got swallowed up by the earth after challenging God's authority and his authority structure through Moses. Uh, number 16 says, now Korah with a number of people assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And that was it. That, that, that is all it took, okay? God has, has clearly established Moses as the political leader of his people. And Aaron was the religious leader, okay? But Korah felt like he 
and all the other people should be on equal footing. And so he rebelled, and God took him out, along with his family, by the way. His family was included in this. They got swallowed up by the earth as well. Remember, we discussed recently how incredibly arrogant rebellion against the Lord is. Well, the opposite fruit of pride in a rebellious heart would be humility and a submissive heart. Humility and a submissive heart. By the way, if you're doing the crossword and the word find, all the left words are on the crossword and all the right words are on the word find. Okay, just so you know. Humility and a submissive heart, which we see in Jesus Christ himself, even when he was obedient to his Father's will up unto death. I love that we, we did the, one of the songs today, uh, You Are Highly Exalted, Name Above All Names. That's very Philippians 2. You read that and you're like, wow, this, this song is Philippians 2 set to music. Good stuff. It tells us that because of his humble obedience, God exalted Christ to his right hand. And then, you know, it, it, it's thanks to Jesus' faithfulness and going to the cross to die for our sins. That's, that's how we have salvation in him. And then because Christ rose from the dead, we can be certain that we will one day rise from the dead too. And that's a wonderful promise. But the false believers that Jude is referring to, they did not respond appropriately to the good news of Christ's sacrifice. Okay, in fact, they reject God's will and they live for themselves. So Jude goes on to say, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear. Some, some translations uh, say without fear of God. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Is that a reservation you want? Not me. Not me. There's a lot contained in these, these half dozen short metaphors, um, so we're going to examine them. Uh, firstly, he refers to them as hidden reefs. Okay? This is something that um, he's referring to what a sailor would recognize as a terrible danger. Okay? Now, we're, most of us here are not, with the exception of y'all, are not like nautical people. Like, that's not what we do. Right? We got a couple folks in the boat, thank God, pretty awesome. They spend the entire summer pretty much almost every weekend taking groups out on their boat, uh, which is great. But coral reefs punch holes in the bottom of ships. Okay, that's what they do. They, they cause them to sink. And so the people, people that are like these hidden reefs could be thought of as faith wreckers, okay? Kind of like shipwreck, faith wreckers. This is a very real problem today, just like it was then. Okay? Now, there are, some, there, are, there are people who, according to what we're hearing here, could, they, they spent time mingling with the family of God, but they were undermining the faith of the less mature believers. As Jude says, they, they attend your feasts without fear, which means they're, they're moving around completely unencumbered within the life of the church, the Christian congregation, as a part of the regular fellowship, and they were potentially harming people faith wreckers. Now Paul, when writing to Timothy, said, wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, he says, 
Some have made shipwreck, there's that allusion, shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. This, this is one of these days, guys, we are, we're going to talk about, well, unless Jesus comes back or something happens to me, we're going to talk about this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 and how, um, how Paul refers to handing someone over to Satan. Because that doesn't sit well with most of us. But this is a very biblical concept. There's, but there's a lot to cover today, so I'm going to focus instead on how Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare as opposed to making shipwreck of the faith. Friends, Christians and especially church leaders, okay, are called to be faith preservers. Faith preservers. We should never do something that can harm the faith of a weaker brother or sister. Rather, we should do everything in our power to bolster their faith, to build up their faith. The next metaphor, uh, it falls right along those same lines. Jude refers to those who are these people. He calls them shepherds feeding themselves. So what does that mean? Let me ask you this. What is a shepherd's job? Take, yeah, take care of the sheep. And what did Jesus tell Peter to do? Feed my sheep, right, yes. So what kind of shepherd would only feed himself? A bad shepherd. One that is, for instance, irresponsible and selfish. We're going to camp out on this one for a few minutes because I think this has some really big ramifications for the church, okay? For his contemporary audience... They would have recognized this because most of them were Jewish. They would have recognized this as a direct reference to Ezekiel 34 where God said this through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat? You clothe yourselves with the wool? You slaughter the fat ones? But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you haven't even sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them, so they were scattered. This is sad passage here. The elders of Israel were not doing their job. They, they weren't caring for the people who were under their authority. Instead, he says, they were fattening themselves. Sounds like our current political climate in a lot of ways, doesn't it? But it's far more egregious when it's the religious leaders of a society or of a congregation. Now, you might remember that Paul had a conversation in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders. And he warns them of this very thing. He says there would be savage wolves coming up, coming up from among them to harm the flock. And you can tell that it broke his heart to talk about such things. The men who are elders, who serve as elders in God's church, must be responsible in the way that they serve God's people. And there will be times when they're required to do so in a selfless way because that reflects the love that the Lord has for his people. Later in Ezekiel 34, we read this. For thus says the Lord God, behold. He says, I, I, myself, Search for my sheep 
and will seek them out. Now, how did he do this ultimately? By sending his son, Jesus. That's right. And Jesus said, the word became flesh, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I feel blessed to belong to a body of believers where I do believe the leadership has the best interests of the congregation at heart. I, will, I look over here, Craig's not here today, <laughs> but he does have your best interests at heart. He and I, I think uh, Norma and, and Debbie and Sonny are all on a cruise or something together. Good for them. Um, it, but you, you got to understand, we, we elders at Crossroad, we serve imperfectly but sincerely. Okay, Our elders want to, to follow the instruction of the Apostle Peter who wrote, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. I love that he just, he refers to himself as a fellow elder. That's it. That's what he calls himself. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, because he saw them, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dominating over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, I, I hope that all of you, as long as you attend here, I, I hope that, that you, and if you ever move, wherever you go, I want you to remember this, find a church where the leadership is for the flock. Find a church where the leadership is there to serve the flock, okay? It's more rare than we might wish. Even the Apostle Paul told the Philippians to teach to uh, Timothy to treat him well. And the reason that he gave for this was he said, I have no one else who will be genuinely uh, concerned about your welfare. That is sad. The Apostle Paul had no one else to send but one guy who would be concerned for the welfare of the Ephesian church. Be sure, now as for forever, forever, for the rest of your time here on this planet. Be sure the elders in your church care about you and are sincerely working toward your maturity in Christ and pray for them. Pray for us. I hope you already are. Pray for your elders because we need it. And wherever you go in the future, if you ever move, guys, they'll need it there too. Pray for your shepherds. What about waterless clouds? This, this is an allusion to people who are hypocritical and unhelpful. Um, there's a proverb in the Bible that says, a man who boasts of gifts he doesn't give is like clouds without rain. And the point of a waterless cloud is that it, it appears to bring the promise of rain, but it doesn't. Okay, so people who pretend to be something they're not, those people are practicing hypocrisy. And I want to just remind you, because we've talked about this a couple of times, but I, I still, people still use the word hypocrite to refer to someone that doesn't practice what they preach well. And I'm, I want to remind you, not perfectly practicing what you preach is not being a hypocrite. That is being a human. We all fail to live up to our own standards, okay? Pretending to be something you're not is a hypocrite. That is the actual definition. Hypocrites in Greek, which Jesus called the Pharisees, means actor, 
Okay? I want to make sure everybody's on the same page here. He's saying, you guys are holding up a mask. You're pretending to be something you're not. Okay. Now, Christians, on the other hand, we should be authentic, meaning real and consistent in our, in our moral behavior. And we should be helpful. We shouldn't just promise to bless people, but each of our lives ought to be a blessing to others. Okay? So, what about the fruitless trees that are twice dead and uprooted? Well, fruitless pretty much speaks for itself, right? I mean, it, it, you know, fruitless. It basically, it, it means nothing beneficial comes from that person. Although it's up for debate about what Jude meant by twice dead, uprooted. Um, I, I think he's talking about spiritually dead and even irredeemably so. Because they put themselves in the category of those who've tasted of the heavenly gift and then willingly trampled on the cross of Christ. That's Hebrews 6. We must not be this way, friends. The Lord commands his people to be fruitful for the dual purposes of glorifying and multiplying. And here's what that means, okay? We glorify God with our good deeds. And then through the sharing of the gospel, he multiplies his people through us. What about the wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame? That's a weird Illustration. I kind of struggled with that when I had to read up some commentaries and say, what, what is he talking about here? And I, and I think, this is my opinion, I think he's referring to the crud that gets left over on the beach when the tide recedes. You know what I'm talking about? Some places are worse than others. Who's been to Galveston recently? Right? I mean, you know, think about it. The foam looks pretty filthy, doesn't it? And the detritus that it washes up on the beach is, is, is kind of gross. Like, you, you never find, like, a chest of doubloons, right? I mean, it's always, it's always plenty of rotting kelp and jellyfish and dead stuff. You know, false believers tend to leave a lot of spiritual debris in their wakes, just like the ocean does. I am way behind, aren't I? Sorry. Fruitful. Filthy. Okay? That's what I think he's referring to, leaving filthy stuff behind. But true Christians ought to be cleansing factors cleansing factors in the lives of others. Being around us should rightly cause other believers and even non-believers to feel led to behave differently simply because they sense something holy in us. Now, I hope you're taking stock of yourself as you go through these. Um, one of the hardest things about writing a sermon <laughs> is looking at this and going, boy, have I got work to do. <laughs> but I hope that in preaching that sermon that everybody else can look at this list and go, boy, I've got a lot of work to do. And maybe even, boy, Mark has a lot of work to do because we do, guys. This is for all of us. None of us walk this walk perfectly. If you look at this and you go, wow, I'm only on the right side. You need to get smacked. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, moving on. Um, What about wandering stars? It, it, it's funny. The Greek actually says asteri planetai, which literally translated star planets. So when he says wandering stars, he's literally in the Greek saying star planets. Okay? Have you ever mistaken, say, Venus for a star? You remember for a while Jupiter was really bright, not that long ago, about this time last year, I think. Um, Venus is super bright. You usually see it before any other stars. Um, but it happens all the time to the uninitiated. You know, we, we see a planet, we think it's a star. But if, you're, if you are a nautical navigator, okay, you can't plot a course 
based on planets that just happen to look like stars because they are unreliable guides. You cannot make your way across the ocean on the planets. They are not fixed in the night sky the way the stars are. And even, you know, we can, we can see the North Star, right? That's, that's your, they, they say that that's the one that pretty much stays in the same place. But even so, if you know what time of year it is, you can still plot, you know, the, the turning of the stars in the sky. It's different for planets. We Christians are called to be something else entirely, not wandering stars, not, not star planets. Because we are, are fixed. Our feet are supposed to be planted on the words of Jesus Christ. Because we have a reliable guide, we ourselves ought to be reliable guides to others. Whether it's in the church or it's in the world. You know, we should be consistent in our biblical faith. And that means both in our doctrine and in our practice. Orthodoxy is incredibly important. I'm not sure how much time we spend, though, on orthopraxy. We should look like Jesus. We should look like Jesus. People should look at us and recognize characteristics of Christ in us. We, we want to be like Jesus so the world can see what faithful people look like and the Lord can draw them to himself through our witness. Anyway, let's keep reading because this next part's weird. Um, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you sense a theme? <laughs> First of all, this is not a biblical reference. I just want to point that out. Uh, except for this part. But the reference that he's making is to, it's actually alluding to the book of Enoch, which is, it's an, it's an extra-biblical, it's an apocryphal writing, okay? However, since this part is, this part of it is included in Scripture, we can assume that it is at least legit, okay? At least this chunk, all right? But do you notice a theme? You know, what is the word that keeps showing up? Ungodly. Right, so Jude, he's talking about judgment, and he basically says that God is going to flip the smite switch on those who practice ungodly deeds and speech. Now you say, well, what exactly does that entail? Oh, we're covering a whole lot of it right now. His point, I think, is to say the folks that do this stuff, they are in trouble. They are setting themselves up for spiritual failure and ultimately spiritual death. Make no mistake, friends, God is not pleased with things that go against his character, whether they're said or whether they're done. And Christians, we are called to a different set of standards. God has different expectations for us than he does the world. So when we look like the world, we are failing. While false believers will unrepentantly continue to use their mouths and their bodies to dishonor the Lord, true believers ought to set an example with our godly deeds and speech, okay? Now, by the way, um, at this point, Jude seems to kind of punch the accelerator, and so we're going to do that too. He says, 
Uh, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I want, I want us to unpack this right quickly. Um, grumbling means what? Complaining, yes. So these people are complainers. They are ungrateful. Now, I want you to, to pause for just a second, because remember, we are supposed to be examining our own hearts, okay? A person who constantly complains must be an ungrateful person. And we've seen from the example of the Israelites a couple weeks ago uh, that between Egypt and the promised land, we saw very clearly God hates ingratitude. He hates it. It infuriates him. And Christians ought to be grateful for the same reason that we ought to be generous because we freely receive salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And there's nothing that we could complain about that should overshadow that blessing, friends. Nothing. We are freed from sin. We are pardoned from hell by God's mercy through Christ's blood. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. So let's not be discontented like the people that Jude is referring to. Um, you know, being, being unhappy where God, with where God has you, that doesn't help you at all, but it can definitely hurt you, okay? And it can hurt those around you as well because malcontents are really hard to be around. But people who are satisfied, which is a good fruit, People who are, who are satisfied and contented, they, they attract the attention and the affection of other people because they're, a, listen, if you're content, you are free to enjoy life right now. Isn't that awesome? If you're always complaining, basically what you're saying is there's nothing worth enjoying in life. These wonderful blessings, my, my spouse and my children, you know, my my family that raised me, the home I live in, none of this stuff is worth celebrating because of this one little petty, stupid first world problem that I have. We need to stop complaining so much. Am I complaining about complaining? Ooh. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. When we're free, listen, guys, when we're free to enjoy life right now, that points a big finger at the goodness and kindness of God. And people see it. And when a person is satisfied with their lot in life as provided by God, then they tend to walk with him instead of being self-willed like the people that Jude mentions. You know, they're, they're always following their own sinful desires. Here's a, quick, here's a quick gut check, okay? You ready for it? Ready? Okay, here's, the, this is, the people that Jude mentions, okay, always following their own sinful desires, Bear with me. I think one of the most socially accepted sins right now within the church, I'm not talking about the culture, within the church, is addiction to entertainment. One of the most socially accepted sins within the church is addiction to entertainment. You have a question? Shoot. No. No. Although I do think that there is, there is a, an, an aspect to that in a lot of church services, yes. But that's, 
that's not what I'm referring to. But that's a good question. But the entertainment that I'm referring to is, um, how many of us, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself, okay? <laughs> you raise your hand. Yeah, amen. Yeah, me too. How many of us within the church are always seeking something to distract us on our phones or on TV? I think if, if just about all of us or gaming systems, you know, just scrolling, sports, that's a big, not for me, but that, that's a big one for some people. <laughs> I mean, y'all, I struggle with this. Is it possible? Is it possible that we are, are giving in to temptation when we chase that constant serotonin boost? And the church is where? It's all over the world. So right here in America, the American church. Yeah. Well, that makes it even worse on us then. <laughs> They're not wrong. What's that? Oh. <laughs> This is honestly the, the biggest discussion that I've ever had from the pulpit. Uh, I'm going to get back to the sermon, though. Um, but, but this is good. I mean, I, I appreciate the feedback. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's, this, is, this is a big, serious thing. That I, I don't think we, we treat this as a sin. I don't think we see this for as dangerous as it is. I really don't. I personally struggle with this. My wife will tell you. <laughs> it annoys the heck out of her sometimes. Craig's not here. I can say heck. Um, <laughs> but John Piper once said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Okay? Shouldn't we rather be God-seeking? And y'all, that's not to say that we should never relax, you know, by watching TV or scrolling occasionally, but, but should it always be our first go-to? You know, God wants our attention, friends. I remember one time Judah and Maddie were sitting on the couch at our house, and I hope it's okay to bring this up. It's really cute. And Judah was sitting here, and they were, they were like sitting right up against each other, but Judah was doing, you know, like this. And Maddie goes, pay attention to me. <laughs> I was like, good girl, good for you. Um, so it was, you know, God, God wants our attention. He wants us to pay attention to him. We spend so much time entertaining ourselves. The loudmouth boasters could possibly be summed up by the word arrogant, since that's what leads to loudmouth boasting. Um, but Christians are to be meek, which is not to be confused with weak. Okay, I want to make sure we're clear on that. It's not the same thing. Meekness is simply, you could be very strong and be meek. It, it means being respectful of others and placing them above yourself. It's, a, it's a, a show, but a sincere show of humility. And false Christians are where we'll usually find all the bad isms. You know, he mentions favoritism. Favoritism takes a lot of forms, okay? Takes a lot of forms. Real racism is a bad type of favoritism. 
And by real racism, I don't mean everything that's called racism today. I mean actual racism, okay? Real sexism, real ageism, real economic statusism are favoritism, okay? Placing someone ahead of someone else simply because of their, their wealth, their color, their gender, etc. that all goes against what Jesus' other brother, James, wrote at the beginning of his, his epistle, chapter 2. It says, my brothers, it's real clear, do not show favoritism <laughs> of any type. Don't show favoritism, okay? Christians, though, we should exhibit the goodisms. Now, I'm going to be super transparent right now which is probably normal, and tell you guys that I wrote this down without realizing just how few positive words end with ism, okay? I had to look down the list. I was like, wow, there's a lot of really bad isms, but let's go with theological conservatism and fundamentalism, okay? We can do that. Um, and uh, yeah, <coughs> capitalism, excuse me. Uh, in other words, um, putting God's word on a pedestal, fair enough? Fundamentalism is putting God's word where it belongs. It's saying that, that this is really the way things are. Um, and, and theological conservatism is saying, it's basically saying, um, if the Bible says it, then yeah, I'm going to go with that. As opposed to, you know, well, Mary wasn't really a virgin. You know, that, that's theological liberalism. That is, not, that is not Christianity, okay? You cannot be, in my opinion, you cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus was not born of a virgin. I think that is one of the things that is essential to the Christian faith. Otherwise, how can you believe that he is God in the flesh? Anyway, um, those two things are good isms, so we're going to move on. This is the last part of Jude for today. Um, did I get that up? Yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers followed by, uh, excuse me, following their own ungodly passions it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So again, we're talking about the apostles like, like Paul in Acts chapter 20, like Peter in 2 Peter 2. They warned us about these people, okay? And he says they are scoffers, meaning they mock God. Remember what, what Galatians said earlier, God will not be mocked? No, God will not brook that for long. He will judge those who mock him, Okay? Scoffers mock him. It's very interesting to me just because this ties so well into the Sunday school class. When you read the second Peter chapter where he talks about scoffers, he says there will come scoffers. They deliberately forget. Uh, a a fellow says that means they're dumb on purpose. Okay, they deliberately forget that God created the, the, the heavens and the earth out of waters and then he destroyed them with water. So in other words, they deny the flood. They deny the creation. I think that's something we have to be careful about. And there are scoffers that say, the world's always the way it's always has been, and there was no God that created this, and it all just came from an explosion. You know, it, it's insanity. But people believe it. Anyway, um, scoffers are mockers of God. They mock his word. They mock his will. But God will not be mocked, and they will be judged if they don't repent. So pray for repentance of anyone you know that's a scoffer. Christians, however, should be God-honoring, just as our Savior was. You know, in John 8, Jesus, he, he set our example besides, besides being God the Son in the flesh, okay? He set an example when he said this, I honor my Father, he says, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. Isn't that incredible? Even Christ 
did not seek his own glory. He says, I do not seek my own glory, yet there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Now, this last bit has a little potential to be scary, if not for the fact that Jesus continued saying, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Yeah, can we get an amen for that? <laughs> Let's finish Jude's thought. These false Christians are divisive. Now, please understand, that this is not referring to the necessary divisiveness that occurs when defending the purity of essential doctrine, okay? If someone comes in this church and says that they don't believe the gospel, then that person cannot have Christian fellowship with us. That doesn't mean they can't sit here and listen to the truth. But you don't have, you don't have that connection. You have to put a dividing line between those who believe the gospel and those who do not. Okay? But what he's talking about is people that are divisive for division's sake. They like the drama. You know what I'm talking about? Know anybody like that? They like the drama. A person who intentionally drives a wedge between brothers in Christ. Now, this is a terrible thing, okay? When God desires that we be unifying as opposed to divisive. We're supposed to be humbling ourselves for the sake of maintaining peace in the body and, and keeping one another in fellowship. We do that by showing grace, okay? And to have the proper mentality, we, we, we have to avoid succumbing to this idea of the world, which false Christians dive into, okay? The world is, is divisive. We must not be like the world. We must not be worldly, as Jude says these people are. And the Bible, being worldly means being fully allied with the world, which is one of the three enemies of our soul. You remember this? Remember this? The world, the flesh, the devil, right? Why would we want to be worldly? Isn't that the same danger to us as being fleshly or being satanic? Think about it. Think about it. It's a serious question. But Christians ought to be spiritual, meaning that we are led by the Holy Spirit. And it's gone. Did I do that? Okay. Sorry. Uh, according to Romans 8, this is, this is one of the, the, the best passages in the whole Bible to me is Romans 8. If you're going to memorize any chapter in the Bible, that's a great one to memorize. According to Romans 8, we will, we will be led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want you to hear this. We will be led by the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit lives in us. You catch that? That's Paul in Romans 8. We will be led by the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit lives in us. And this leads us to Jude's final charge. He says, false Christians are devoid of the Spirit. They are spiritless. They do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Now, ultimately, this, this is the most fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is whether or not they have the Holy Spirit. And yet the invisibility of God's Spirit means that his presence is only shown by the fruit. Do you understand that? The presence of the Holy Spirit is only evidenced by the fruit. That's how we know if someone else has the Holy Spirit. It's not simply because they make a profession. It's because we see the Spirit at work in that person. 
Only those who are born again by the Holy Spirit can consistently show the evidence of being Spirit-filled, which is what we are called to do. So let's wrap this up. This is a passage from Ephesians 5. It gives us an example of what it, what it looks like to be Spirit-filled. Okay, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. You see all these different things. You see the praise. You see the gratitude. You see the glory. Giving thanks always and for everything, including the stuff we don't like so much, right? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it looks like. In a nutshell, that is what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of the good fruit side fits into this description, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you look, you'll say, yeah, a whole lot of this fits right into that paragraph. So here's what I want us to do. I want, I want to take a moment, maybe not a literal moment, but at least a few seconds. I want you to read through these lists and ask yourself, which side do I fall most consistently on? If it's the stuff on the right, it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit living in you. If it's the stuff on the left, then ask yourself, have I ever really placed my faith in Jesus Christ? And if you have not, do it today. Do it right now. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've not gone through with what he has commanded of you, professed him publicly and been baptized according to the word, then you need to do that today. And if you've done those things and, and you, you go, you know, I, I know that I've, I've taken those steps, but I'm not being obedient. You know, I haven't joined a body of believers and I haven't uh, become a, a part of, of that fellowship and, and begun walking alongside other Christians in obedience to Christ. If, that, if you haven't done that, you can do it today. You can decide today to do it right now. And then for anyone who is honest enough to admit you haven't arrived, which I hope is all of us, take Paul's command to heart. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for this wonderful bunch of people. God, I thank you for the blessing of being able to preach your word to them. Lord, we, we pray for safety for those who are traveling right now. We pray for healing for those who are home right now, Lord, sick. And um, I just, I, I miss seeing them. They're usually right here, Lord, the Thomas family. I just pray that you will uh, encourage them and, and, and have Tracy feeling better soon and have it not spread to the rest of the family. Uh, Father, uh, we, we pray. Thank you that Mark is back. Uh, we notice Vanna is still sick, I guess, Lord, but we, we just pray, God, that you watch over this flock, Lord. We, we love you, Lord. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to worship you. And God, as I, as I look around the room, I, I know that just about everybody here is a professing believer, but Father, I know that there are areas where we need to show more fruit. I pray, God, that you give us that wisdom and capability. Give us the courage to see the places where we fall short and to say, I don't want to do that anymore. And then give us the wherewithal and the wisdom to walk away from that and, and to walk more faithfully in your footsteps. And we thank you, God, for Jesus. 
We thank you for his death and resurrection. And uh, Father, we ask you to help us to live in a way that draws people to you and glorifies and honors you. It's in Christ's name we pray.